Most of us, probably at some point, have had this fantasy. One day, you won the lotto jackpot, and you started to fantasize about what you would do with all of that money. Now, I know because a lot of you in this room are good Christian men and women, you would never do something like buy a lottery ticket. But we're talking about other people. Always fantasize about what they would do if they won the big jackpot. Uh, down, in the, down in the States, they have a jackpot called the Mega Millions. Right now, I checked, it's around $280 million if you win. Last July, get this, last July, the Mega Millions jackpot was over one billion dollars. That's kind of life-changing. That would, that would change things up a little bit in your life. Even if you didn't win something as wild as a billion dollars, even something like a million dollars or a few hundred thousand dollars would drastically change your life. And we can all think of the new house, the cars, the vacation, and the assortment of other things we would love to spend that kind of money on. Now, I have a confession to make. I have not won a billion dollars or a million, but I did win four dollars. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, once in my life, I have gone to ca the casino. I was 19 years old. I was like, what's all the fuss about? I went to the casino. I gave myself a budget of ten dollars to play the nickel slots. I went in with ten bucks. I left with 14. I'm pretty sure I tithed, okay? Um, but because I have no plans to ever go back to the casino, I will be one of the few people in the history of the world to be a lifetime winner at the casino. Because most people end up losing almost all of their money that they go to the casino with. But that's a 40% increase in my assets. That's insane. That's incredible. $4 isn't life-changing. A million is. Certainly a billion is. But did you know that the statistics about lotto winners tell us that, yes, their lives were changed by the lottery, but often not in the way they fantasized about before winning? Up to 70% of lottery winners only a few years later end up worse off than they were before they won the lotto, often in bankruptcy. Part of the problem is is that such a drastic change in personal wealth, they don't understand how to spend that kind of money, so they spend it foolishly and bankrupt themselves through taxes and other expenses that come with it they don't expect. But also, their new wealth often leads to massive relational conflict. Every family member and their dog shows up asking for money, and relationships start to break down. Winning the lottery, it seems, for most people, becomes a curse, not a blessing. And all of you here are like, well, I'd at least like to try, right? <laughs> Money's such a big issue in our lives, it tends to dominate our thoughts, especially in a time where budgets are tight. Inflation is high. This month, if you're a homeowner, you're paying property taxes. Sorry to remind you and stress you out in the middle of the sermon. Time, times are tight. Money becomes a dominant thought in our lives. So we're starting a series for the next few weeks looking at what the scriptures say about money. We've called it God of money. Now, let me say a couple of things quickly before I continue to give you some expectations about this series. Number one, I am not a financial advisor. I am a pastor. 
So I'm not going to spend the next few weeks giving you advice of how to spend your money and where to invest and yada, yada, yada. That stuff kind of comes in as a secondary piece, but that's not the main thrust of the series. I'm a pastor, so I want to give you spiritual direction. I want to talk about the impact money has on your heart, how it can dominate us, how it can become an object of worship in place of God, and I want to reorient our hearts to have an appropriate view, biblical view of money, so that you can actually go and get financial advice from others with the appropriate view from the scriptures of how to use money, and those two things will partner together. We are, however working on some practical resources. I don't want to announce anything too early, but some practical resources that will help with some practical questions as well. Number two, this series is not a fundraising scheme. We did not start this series because we're like, oh my goodness, we're in desperate need of money. We better preach about money for the next month. No, that's not why we're doing this. Yes, the church does need money. We fundraise. That's how we build our budget, but that's not the purpose of this series. I will talk about why it's important biblically to give to your church, but that's not the big thrust of the series. Too many people have been taken advantage of by churches and preachers and manipulated into giving beyond their means. I'm not that kind of person. We're not that kind of church. That's not what we do around here. This series is not because we want something from you. It's because we want something for you, because there's a lot of freedom associated with a proper understanding from the scriptures of how to deal with our resources. So let's get into it. Today, we're starting with a basic question. Why do we talk about money in church? It's every congregation member's favorite topic, I know. If you're new to church, you're like, this is exactly what I thought church was going to be like. They're talking about money. Sorry, you caught us at a bad time. Why do we ask for an offering every week? Why do we have debit machines in the lobby? Why do we have a whole sermon series on money? Shouldn't we be focusing on more important spiritual issues? Let's get into that. Why do we talk about money in church? I want to start with a passage of scripture from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. This is near the end of Jesus' sermon on the mount. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let me today give you five reasons why we talk about money in church. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's five of the most important ones, I think. Let me tell you five reasons why we talk about money in church. Number one, the most important reason, is because Jesus talked about money a lot. In fact, if you look at the amount Jesus talked about money, the percentage of his teachings that were related to money and possessions and how to deal with them and how they relate to our faith in God and the kingdom of God, I actually probably don't talk about money enough. I don't talk about it nearly as much as Jesus did in the percentage of his teachings. Think about this. 16 of the 38 parables we have in in the New Testament are concerned with how to handle money and possessions in God's kingdom. 
Jesus said more about money and possessions than he said about heaven and hell combined. He said more about money than he said about salvation or about prayer. One out of ten verses in the Gospels deals directly with the subject of wealth. In the whole Bible, there are approximately 500 verses on prayer, 500 verses about faith, and 2,000 verses on money. If Jesus talked about it that much, there must be a reason. He must have seen money and wealth as a vitally important topic for his followers to wrap their minds around. The general thrust of Jesus' teaching is not the health and wealth prosperity gospel. If you give this much, God will give you that much, and blah, 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 blah. That's not how Jesus taught. In fact, most of Jesus' teaching about money was a warning. A warning about the deceptive power of money in our lives. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus teaches the, the famous parable of the sower, where the farmer goes out and he spreads seed on multiple kinds of soil. One of the kinds of soil, we're told that the seed grows up quickly, but then along with the soil, there were weed, along with the good seed, there were weeds planted, and the weeds grew up and choked out the good fruit. And he said, what, is the re- what, are the, what do the weeds represent in that situation? The weeds represent the deceptiveness of wealth. One of the dangers Jesus points out is the fact that those of us who have wealth, and by that I mean most of us in this room when you consider the, the high quality of living we have in this nation, most of us with wealth consider that everything is fine as long as we have our needs met. Everything is fine as long as I have some money in the bank and my bills are paid and my retirement savings is growing. Everything will be fine. But Jesus' warning is to say, no, not everything is fine just because your monetary needs are met. Money can actually blind us to our spiritual poverty and our great need for rescue. And uh, the uh, the weeds of the, the deceitfulness of wealth come out and choke our faith because we stop putting our trust in God and we put our, our trust in wealth, which is a trap. But along with warnings, the Bible gives us plenty of wisdom about how to use money in constructive ways, ways that will be a blessing to you and ways that will be a blessing to the people around you and will help grow God's kingdom and be a blessing in the church. And we'll get more into that in the coming weeks. But we talk about money in church because Jesus talked about money a lot. The second reason, I think this is the main reason why Jesus talked about it, is that money is a spiritual issue. Money is a spiritual issue. When we talk about things like prayer, and we talk about Bible reading, and we talk about fasting, what do we call those things? We call them spiritual disciplines. Now, these are physical activities, meaning you do them with your body, but we call them spiritual disciplines because they're intentional practices that we implement in order to bring health and vitality to our soul and build our relationship with God. They are physical practices that build spiritual life. And I want to suggest to you that the way we think about and handle money is as much a spiritual discipline as what we do with prayer and scripture and fasting and so on. Money is a spiritual issue. Prayer isn't just about sitting on Jesus' lap like he's Santa and asking for stuff. It's about communion with Jesus that shapes our soul. Bible reading isn't just about learning information from a book. Bible reading is about engaging with the Word of God to shape the inner self. And the same is true of money. It has a massive impact on shaping the inner self, the way we think about it, and the way we handle it. 
More than that, let's go back to Jesus' words in Matthew 6 to see how money is a spiritual issue. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is so powerful, according to Jesus, it's so powerful spiritually that it has the capacity to dethrone God from his rightful place of highest glory and honor in our lives. Money is personified here as a kind of a God, a master who can rule and reign in our lives if we allow it to. We give it the power to as a kind of savior for us, displacing God. Jesus describes money as a potential object of worship. According to Jesus, money is God's, one of God's primary competitors for the worship and affection of humankind. Meditate on that for a moment. And you'll see that it's true. Worship, we worship money. Because what is, what is worship? Worship is the reverence and adoration of someone or something. When we worship, we're dedicating ourselves to it. We're committing ourselves to something. When we worship, we're, we're pursuing the object of affection. We make sacrifices to get more of what we're pursuing and to please that person or thing. We glorify our object of worship to the highest priority and importance in our lives, organizing our time and energy around it. We worship money. We adore money and possessions. We dedicate ourselves to obtaining more. We pursue wealth. We make sacrifices to get more money. Money becomes uh, this, this strategic priority in our lives and everything else revolves around it. We, we put other pursuits aside, organizing ourselves around the pursuit of making and spending more money. But Jesus says we can't have it both ways. God won't share our worship with money. You choose one or the other. Listen, when we worship and serve money instead of God, here's what happens. We start to use God to get more money. God becomes the cosmic vending machine, and the only reason we worship him, the only reason we obey him, the only reason we claim to trust him is so that he will make us financially secure, so that he will bless us and prosper us. But if we don't feel blessed and prosperous, we start to blame God for not doing his job. What have we revealed about our own heart? Our object of worship is money. We're just using God to get what we really want. But more than that, we'll use God to get money. We'll also start using people to get money. But when you, when you put God in the primary place of worship, when you've got the order right, instead of using God to get money and using God, or using God to get money and using people to get money, you'll start to use money to love God. You'll start to use money to love people. Money will just be a resource you use in order to prioritize what should be a higher priority in your life, which is the love of God and the love of the people around you. If God is not our object of worship, we reverse the order and we use him to get more of what we truly worship. So money is a spiritual issue. It shapes the soul. It's a competitor for our worship of God. And it can lead to all kinds of evil and suffering in our own lives and in the lives of those we impact. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money have wandered from true faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money has caused extra problems in their lives. Or in the words of Biggie, more money, more problems. Listen, it doesn't say, it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's our love of money that pierces us with grief. Money is amoral. Money just is. Money itself isn't good or bad. It's just the currency humans have created as a way to exchange goods and services. However, the love of money, the pursuit of money, the prioritization of money, the adoration of money is a root of all kinds of evil and grief and suffering in the world. Do I even have to prove that? We know that. We see it all around us. Again, will you use God and love money? Will you use people and love money? Will you love God and use money? And will you love people and use money? You can't love both God and money. You can't love both people and money. You have to have your loves in priority. Money is a spiritual issue. Third reason why we talk about money in the church is that money fuels the mission of the church. Money fuels the mission of the church. I told you this series isn't a fundraising campaign, and it isn't, but here are some facts. The reality is the church has a budget. We have expenses. We use money to pay the bills. Just so you know, we're not just praying the bills into payment, okay? We use money to pay the bills. There's multiple ways to organize what the Bible calls the church. Some ways are more expensive than others. The way this church is organized, we have things like a big building, and we have staff, and we have programs, and we do all kinds of different things. And the way we've organized the church has certain expenses to it. If you like to be a part of a church that has a building to gather in and do ministry in and a gymnasium and space for kids and all kinds of things like that, then it's going to cost us money. If you like to have a church that's not just volunteer pastors but paid pastors, it's going to cost money. Those are just the facts. Next week, I'm going to talk a little bit about where the money goes, how it's spent, because I think it's important to have uh, lots of transparency about that. But I want to give you this picture. I want to give you this picture. The mission of APA moves forward by the power of three driving forces. Money, volunteerism, and prayer. Money, volunteerism, and prayer. That's what will drive the mission of APA forward. We exist to help each other follow Jesus at home, in our city, and around the world. And what drives that? Money, volunteerism, and prayer. Now I want to give you this picture. If you, as a kid growing up, if you went to school on a big yellow school bus... Okay, here's, here's a nice big school bus. You might recognize this. On that school bus, you hopped on. Maybe you were on your way to school. Maybe you were on a field trip. Buses were always busy and full and loud. Sometimes you'd sing songs. Sometimes you've had fights. Kind of sounds like church, right? You're on the bus. You and I, we're all on the bus. We're all on this bus together. Maybe myself and the board and other pastors, we represent the driver steering the wheel, 
God is the dispatcher and we're listening to his voice. He's telling us where to go. We're all in a destination. We're on a mission together on the bus. All y'all are passengers on the bus. If we stick together, if we love each other, we'll sing some songs along the way and have some fun and do some crowd control. Eventually, we'll get to our destination. We make stops along the way to pick up more passengers. Praise God, because there's always room on the bus. But what is going to drive the engine of this bus? What is going to make that big engine propel forward? Three things. Number one, the engine needs fuel. The engine isn't going anywhere without fuel, and that fuel in this metaphor is money. Sometimes it seems like the church always needs money, and guess what? It does. Just like your car always needs fuel. Every week, you've got to pump more gas into that car, and it burns it off because it needs to burn the fuel. But number two, the engine needs oil. Oil keeps the engine moving smoothly and effectively, efficiently. It keeps the engine from overheating and cracking, keeps something from blowing up. The oil is volunteerism. We need everyone working together like a well-oiled machine. If only some people volunteer or if only the staff are required to do all the work, what happens? They burn out. The engine explodes. It cracks. It breaks. We need all people working together like a well-oiled machine. And finally, the engine needs a spark. Nothing gets started no matter how much fuel you have in the tank. Nothing gets started without a spark, and that spark is prayer. That spark is prayer, engaging with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leans into the prayers of God's people and responds to our cries for his guidance and his help and his provision. The spark that gets the whole engine going is prayer. Money, volunteerism, and prayer. And we need all three. The bus can't move with just two. It can't move with just fuel and oil. It can't move with just a spark and oil. It can't move with just fuel and a spark. We need all three. And might I suggest we need everyone to do all three. It's not a buffet. You don't come in and sign up and say, I'll take prayer. You can do the giving part. Right? It may be that some people can give more money than others, but everybody can give a little bit. It may be that some people are more called to and more capable prayers than others, but everybody needs to pray a little bit. It may be that some people have more time and energy and skill to volunteer, but everyone can do a little bit. Even if it's literally just picking up a piece of garbage on your way out, everybody can do a little bit. Money fuels the mission of the church. Number four, money impacts relationships. The reason we talk about money in church is because it deeply impacts relationships. If there's something the church should be deeply concerned about, it's relationships. Jesus' most important command to the church was that we love each other. It's our biggest project. And if we're going to love each other, we're going to have to talk about the impact money has on our relationships with one another and with God. I was looking up uh, Canadian statistics, and my question was, Uh, what is the biggest reason for divorce in Canada? And it depends on the website you visit and how you define the terms, but either number, it was either number one or always in the top three. Conflict related to money was the biggest reason for divorce in Canada. The impact that money has on our most important relationships, we need to talk about it. Money impacts uh, all our relationships. Let Let me show you some more research I found 
kind of humorous in some ways as well. Uh, the University of Berkeley in California, they found that even fake money could make people behave with less regard for others. So researchers put students, uh, two, two students, they made them play Monopoly. And how many know Monopoly never builds up relationships? <laughs> A Monopoly game doesn't end the way the rules tell it to end. A Monopoly game ends when someone gets so mad they just flip the board and then walk away. I've never actually finished the game of Monopoly. So this is what they did. They gave one student much more money than the other student to play the game. And at first, the student with more money felt a little bit uncomfortable with that situation, but eventually they got into it. They were louder. They, they, they would mock the other student. And they, get this, they would move their pieces more loudly on the board. <laughs> Just because they had more money, fake money, than the other person. Another Berkeley study, uh, they were studying in San Francisco, and I think the law is the same here. You have to stop at crosswalks when there's pedestrians, right? So they found that drivers of luxury cars, expensive cars, Mercedes, Lamborghinis, whatever, drivers of luxury cars were four times less likely than drivers of less expensive vehicles. They were less likely to stop and allow pedestrians the right of way. They were also more likely to cut off other drivers. The sense of entitlement in my expensive car. Uh, researchers from Harvard and the University of Utah found that study participants were more likely to lie or behave immorally after merely being exposed to money-related words. Which makes me worry about you guys at lunch after church today. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, Number four, wealthier children tend to be more distressed than lower-income kids. They are at a higher risk for anxiety, depression, substance abuse, eating disorders, cheating, and stealing. I think most people assume that higher-income kids would feel better about life, but it's actually the opposite. Number five, people with lower income tend to assume that wealthy, wealthy people are less moral and more greedy, which is exactly what all y'all were doing when I showed the previous stats in this list. Uh, we even tend to take pleasure when wealthy people suffer. They deserve it. There's no way they got their, all their money through moral means. I'm glad they're suffering. Finally, there's no correlation between money and happiness. Studies have found that as soon as you hit a certain level where your basic needs are met for shelter and clothing and food, once your basic needs are met with your current level of income, any increased income adds no happiness to your life. There's no correlation between money and happiness. Money impacts our relationships so significantly. That's why we need to talk about it in church. Finally, money directs the heart. Money directs the heart. Let's go back to Matthew 6 in Jesus' words, verse 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure, that which you put the most value on, gives direction to your heart. 
Think about how powerful and practical this statement is. When you consider where your love and affection is directed, I guarantee that you have tied your treasure to those affections. Like, how much did those golf clubs cost? I'm not saying a bad thing, but like, if you love golf, if your heart is on the golf course, I guarantee that those golf clubs cost too much. (laughs) Or grandma, how much do you spoil your grandkids? It's not in the budget. Who cares? I love my grandkids. They're the best, right? I'll give them anything. Now, when your kids were at home, it was different, right? But it's the grandkids. Your heart is there, so, so your treasure is there as well. But the problem is we're not always loving the right things. Or at least we don't always have the most important loves in the most important order. When our heart is misdirected toward the wrong things or overly directed toward loves that should be secondary, it actually puts our lives in a precarious position. Or, in Jesus' words, we're storing up treasures on earth, indestructible, temporary things. Even the most expensive golf clubs can fail you. I'm sorry to tell you, the golf club is only as good as the golfer who swings it. There's no correlation between expensive clubs and and a better game. Certainly our retirement saving plans are fallible, ebbing and flowing with the market. Fast cars and big houses don't actually bring the lasting joy we thought they would. And all of these things are temporary and can be lost in a moment. And all of them get left behind when we die. And in case you needed a reminder you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're going to be alive. Or put better, because we will be alive with Jesus, this life is a lot shorter than what is to come. So the better investment is where? In things that will last. We can actually invest in things in this world that will be carried over into the next phase of our life. Think of the power of Jesus' statement. You might say something like, well, I just, I don't have a heart for missions. I'm not really interested in church planting in Africa or university student ministry in Thailand. Well, here's my guarantee. If you wrote a great big check and sent it to a missionary in Africa or Thailand, you'd start to become very interested in what's going on over there. If you took time off work and booked an expensive plane ticket and went to go volunteer at Children of Blessing with the bowlers in in Malawi you would suddenly have a heart for children's ministry in Africa because you can actually direct your heart by sending your treasure. So if you find that your heart is misaligned and your loves are out of order, you can actually practically do something to realign your heart into the right order. Jesus says all you have to do is send your treasure to the right places. Your heart will follow. You know what's on God's heart if you figure out what he's most passionate about and you want to get on the same page as God, send your treasure first and your heart will follow. Listen, we need to talk about money in church because God is very interested in the heart. More than what we look like, more than our actions, more than our resumes, more than all outward appearances, God looks at the heart. That's his greatest desire in our lives, that he would have our heart. And so we need to talk about the power money has over our hearts. 
The band's going to come back up to close with the song. But I want to leave you with two thoughts to meditate on, both in this moment and throughout the week, as, and then as we continue this series next week. First thought is this. How is money, possessions, treasure, whatever you want to put in that slot, how is it shaping your heart? How is it shaping your heart? How much are you thinking about it? How much anxiety does it cause? How big of a deal is money in your life? What do you think it's doing to your heart? How is it impacting your relationships? How is it impacting your relationship with God? How much is money shaping your heart? Just be honest about that between yourself and God. And the second thing to meditate on, and this will be the focus of the rest of the series, what will you do with your money and with your other treasures, your time, your talents, your material possessions, what will you do with your money to shape your heart toward God and toward others? What will you do with what you have to shape your, your heart toward God and toward others? In a moment, we're just going to kind of sit in silence for a minute and, and think about that and pray through that. And then we're going to go back to that song we closed our worship set with, Lord, I Need You. And we'll tag it again with that song, Jaira. The, the, the word Jaira, it's a name for God. I know Annie Lynn explained a lot of this already. It's a name for God, and it came from the story where Abraham was told to take his treasure and sacrifice it on a mountain, his one and only son. And Abraham, full of trust in God in a, a really crazy thing God asked him to do, he went about it. He, he went up the mountain. He took his son. And when his son asked where the sacrifice was, Abraham wasn't honest with him, but he said, God will provide. And Abraham was about to take his one and only son's life when all of a sudden he heard a rustling in the bushes, an angel stopped him, and there was a ram right there. And that ram became a substitute provision for Abraham's son. And Abraham gave God the name Jireh, provider. That God is our provider. And ultimately, that story points forward in time to the time. It wasn't just the ram God provided. It was an exchange of sons. God would provide his one and only son in exchange for Abraham's. God would provide everything we needed in Jesus. And when we recognize that everything we need is found in Christ, every single thing we need is found in him, then all the power that possessions and wealth have diminishes so greatly because Jesus becomes the object of our worship and our affection and our desire because everything we need is found in him and he can't be lost. They killed him, they crucified him, they buried him in a tomb hoping he would rot away in there, but he showed up again. He can't be stolen from us. He can't, be, he can't be ripped away because of a failing market. He can't burn down like a house. He can't empty because of a bank account during tax season. None of that can happen to Jesus. When we put our trust in things that can be stolen or destroyed, we put our lives in a position that is precarious. If my life is built on this and it's lost, my life is gone. But if my life is built on Jesus, he can't be taken away. My life is secure for eternity. That's why I'll be with him forever, because my life is attached to him. He is enough. And even if you don't feel that in your heart right now, I want to encourage you as we sing the song to declare it, to start to believe it, to start to say to God, yes, you are enough. Show me, show me, show me that you're enough. Help me, help me, help me to see that. 
So would you stand with me? We're just going to spend a moment in, in silent prayer and meditation before Annie Lynn and the team lead us in this closing song. <laughs>